Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Today on Inside Politics, four-hour pauses. The White House says Israel agreed to stop its attacks on Hamas for four hours every day to allow aid to get in and civilians to get out of Gaza. Plus, fighting for second place, five Republican candidates make their case to voters on the debate stage. They trained most of their fire on each other rather than the far and away frontrunner. Can anyone break through? And a CNN exclusive, Kevin McCarthy is speaking out. His message to eight Republicans responsible for removing him as speaker, we'll give you a hint. It's not friendly. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. I want to start with a major development in the Israel-Hamas war. The White House says Israel will begin four-hour daily pauses in northern Gaza. This announcement came just minutes before Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu released a statement saying there would be no ceasefire without the release of hostages held by Hamas. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is live in Tel Aviv. Jeremy, what are you hearing? Well, Dana, the White House's national security spokesman, John Kirby, saying that uh, Israel will begin implementing four-hour pauses in areas of northern Gaza uh, in order to allow for humanitarian assistance to flow in and to allow civilians uh, to flee the area. He said that Israel would announce the timing of these pauses three hours ahead of time. Uh, and also, of course, this comes as the U.S. has brought significant pressure to bear on Israel to uh, increase its focus on the humanitarian situation in Gaza and to take more care as it relates to civilians in the Gaza Strip. But the Israeli Prime Minister's office, I just got off the phone, Dana, with a spokesman for the prime minister who is reiterating that statement that there will be no ceasefire until a significant number of hostages are released. What the Israelis are saying, Dana, is that they are uh, establishing these evacuation corridors for civilians. Also four hours, but these corridors, Dana, they have been already going on since Sunday. For the last five days, we have watched as Israeli troops have established these uh, evacuation corridors for civilians to flee from northern Gaza to the south. Uh, and uh, these corridors have uh, lasted about four hours. They've been extended yesterday as well as today for some additional hours. In fact, yesterday, Dana, about 50 thousand civilians fled from the north to the south using these corridors, according to both the Israeli military as well as UN monitors. And so what we have to kind of read between the lines here and some of the politics that are at play, the Israeli prime minister does not want to use the term ceasefire. He doesn't even want to use the term humanitarian pauses. He has, however, expressed an openness in the past to little tactical pauses, as he has termed them. The White House, for its part, wants to show that it is uh, acting as it relates to these humanitarian pauses. And it also believes 
that talking about humanitarian pauses will help the negotiations that are happening in Qatar over these hostages to be released. They believe that this will help those negotiations along. And so at the end of the day, what seems clear, Dana, is for the last several days, the Israelis have been pausing their military operations in certain parts of northern Gaza to allow civilians to flee. It appears that they will continue to do that. Perhaps there is a bit more formalization of that effort as the White House characterizes these pauses. Either way, uh, they are essentially talking about the same thing, it appears. They are, and appropriately for a show called Inside Politics, you just described the domestic politics for both the United States, for President Biden, of course, for uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu quite well. Thank you so much for doing that for us, Jeremy. Appreciate it. And turning now to what is happening in the 2024 race here in the U.S., last night's Republican debate. Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Tim Scott were there. Donald Trump was once again not. One big issue, how to talk about abortion. Tuesday's election results showed once again that most Americans do not want abortion bans. So does the GOP need a better message? Has Nikki Haley cracked the code? Or will any amount of messaging change the fact that many just don't like that abortion policy? I don't judge anyone for being pro-choice, and I don't want them to judge me for being pro-life. So when we're looking at this, there are some states that are going more on the pro-life side. I welcome that. There are some states that are going more on the pro-choice side. I wish that wasn't the case, but the people decided. Let's focus on how to save as many babies as we can and support as many moms as we can and stop Thank the you, judgment. Ambassador. We don't need to divide America over this issue anymore. So that was Nikki Haley, and we also want to hear from what her rivals said on that issue, because there wasn't consensus. We're better off when we can promote a culture of life. you got to do a better job on these referenda. I think of all the stuff that's happened to the pro-life cause, uh, they have been caught flat-footed on these referenda, and they have been losing the referenda. We need a 15-week federal limit. I would challenge both Nikki and Ron to join me at a 15-week limit. It is in our nation's best interest. Want to bring in our panel to discuss CNN's David Chalian, Leanne Caldwell of the Washington Post, and Ramesh Panuru of the National Review. Thank you, one and all, for being here. I'm going to start with you uh, from the point of view of you, and obviously uh, you come from uh, the National Review. What was sort of your overall takeaway of what you saw last night? Well, the overall debate was sort of another crabs in a barrel kind of debate where everybody wants to be the rival to Donald Trump and everybody wants to stop everybody else from being that rival. The abortion division was, I think, revealing of a party that has not quite figured out how to respond to the post-Dobbs political environment. I think that um, Nikki Haley had a tone on this issue that a lot of Republicans are probably thinking that's the right tone to strike. But whether the particulars are there, whether she can go on dodging on some of the policy specifics, that's another question. Okay, so I'm glad that you mentioned that. It was probably one of the biggest understatements that I've heard lately, and that Republicans haven't figured out how to talk about abortion. Uh, Also, it is a big difference on, on not a big difference, but a genuine difference on abortion policy. It was really striking, we've talked about this, uh, about what you heard from Ron DeSantis, basically going after the pro-life, some of the pro-life movement for not getting it. I talked to Tim Scott after the debate, asked him about 
what DeSantis had said. Listen to his reaction. Governor DeSantis was pretty tough on conservative activists. He called it the pro-life community. Yes. Saying that the pro-life community was effectively, these are my words, not his words, asleep at the switch. Yep. And that is in part why Republicans and those who are anti-abortion are losing these referenda across the country. Do you agree with that? I don't agree with that whatsoever. I don't understand why he said what he said. There's no reason to insult the pro-life voter unnecessarily. It was a head-scratching moment and obviously an opportunity for Tim Scott, uh, who's out there competing in Iowa with DeSantis, uh, to... uh, take advantage of here. I, I would just note, it, it's particularly odd because of Ron DeSantis's path and strategy for the nomination, which is, it's sort of Iowa or bust for him. And so that is a largely evangelical driven electorate. Uh, this is a very important issue uh, for those voters. And so to say, you know, the pro-life movement is flat-footed on this stuff and they have to get their act together, just seems discordant with a politician who is in desperate need for their votes to show and for them to show up on caucus night for him. Okay, so that, oh, go ahead, do you want to make a no, point of abortion? No, okay, so th- that's obviously one of the big issues, uh, abortion. Another is uh, just the dynamic of seeing Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis in particular trying to sort of battle it out and find their footing to be in place to be number two uh, to Donald Trump. And it really showed up on the issue of China. Then we will go and end all formal trade relations with China until they stop murdering Americans from fentanyl, something Ron has yet to say that he's going to do. You know, Ambassador Haley said somehow I wasn't doing. She welcomed them into South Carolina, gave them land near a military base, wrote the Chinese ambassador a love letter saying what a great friend they were. Yes, I brought a fiberglass company 10 years ago to South Carolina. But Ron, you are the chair of your economic development agency that as of last week said Florida is the ideal place for Chinese businesses. Is that going to, I mean, talk about why this? Well, (laughs) there's a movement around the country in conservative states to pass laws or do something to prevent Chinese investment um, in those particular states. So that was the crux of the conversation, but it is an attempt to out-hawk each other within the Republican Party on this issue of China. Um, And so uh, taking a step back in this debate, let's be clear, there's two primaries that are happening in the Republican primary. You have the Donald Trump primary where he is all alone, and then you have this other primary that is happening where they're doing normal things like campaigning in early states, debating on issues. Um, but they're not intersecting. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge for these candidates is to try to enter into the Donald Trump primary. They haven't been able to. And I think one of the most, getting back to the abortion issue, one of the most telling things about the biggest thing that came out of this debate was how divided the Republican Party is on the issue of abortion. And that was going to be a moment, even if these people aren't the Republican primary um, candidates, that Democrats are going to continue to use heading into 2024. Yeah, no, no question about that. So, and, and on the issue of trying to out um, hawk each other on China, mm-hmm. Vivek Ramaswamy, I think, was kind of trying to do that, but also at the same time trying to appeal to the youth voters when he 
uh, really went after Nikki Haley, not her, but well, went after her, but by doing so uh, invoked her daughter. Listen to what happened and then my question to him afterwards. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters propping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. The easy answer. Why bring up somebody's family member? Isn't that a little bit of 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 a blow below the belt? No, because... It's not a sin for a young person to be on TikTok. I think the error is somebody sanctimoniously lecturing the rest of the country about the perils of it while actually failing to set an example of leadership a little closer to home. Uh, I think that we can easily identify the two candidates on the stage who dislike each other the most. Uh, I, you know, I think that uh, people under normal circumstances would react negatively to the name calling. Uh, that uh, that Haley engaged in, but under these circumstances, I think a lot of people are going to understand it. Okay, we have to talk about what you mentioned, which is there is a front runner. His name is Donald Trump. He did have an event at the same time, approximately in Southern Florida. Let's listen to what he said. It's time for the Republican establishment to stop wasting time and resources trying to push weak and ineffective rhinos and never Trumpers that nobody wants and nobody's going to vote for. They're not watchable. You know, the last debate was the lowest rated debate in the history of politics. So, so therefore, do you think we did the right thing by not participating? And now you might ask, <clears throat> what were the candidates who were on the stage saying about him? I'll say this about Donald Trump. Anybody who's going to be spending the next year and a half of their life focusing on keeping themselves out of jail and courtrooms cannot lead this party or this country. I can talk about President Trump. I can tell you that I think he was the right president at the right time. I don't think he's the right president now. He owes it to you to be on this stage and explain why he should get another chance. I I assume that you agree with Leanne. There's sort of two parallel universes. But let's not forget to note that Trump's position now is that the 2024 primary is settled, but the 2020 election isn't. I mean, there's something particularly <laughs> ridiculous about you know this, this populist saying, we don't need the people to vote. I, I think also we just have to realize because of the nature of how these two universes are not intersecting, as you said, these debates are not going to be very helpful in, in bringing that together, obviously. And I don't think a lot of the traditional... Um, back and forth of messaging on the trail is we're coming to a point 67 days before iowa now where it's like the namely the desantis and haley campaigns are gonna have to prove themselves on the ground organizing voters getting to show up on caucus night to see if they could overtake trump or get close enough to alter the dynamics of this race that's that's the phase of this campaign that we're in now okay before uh we go i just want to play another moment very interesting moment uh, from last night during the debate. Vivek Ramaswamy came out hot. He went after the RNC chair, saying that she should resign and she's responsible for all the GOP losing. Also criticized her for even holding the debate with some news organization other than a conservative one. I asked her about that. I have to ask you first about what Vivek Ramaswamy said. He went after you personally. He did. I'm not going to do that. I'm always going to focus on the Democrats. I will say this, Dana. 
this Republican on Republican infighting, I'm not running for president, so I'm not in this primary, isn't helping our party. And if you can't take a tough question, then you probably shouldn't be running for president. Mike, drop emoji. Uh, all I'm right, guys. I'm not going to do that, Jesus. <laughs> and then completely join in. And then <laughs> Uh, with a smile and in heels. Uh, everybody stand by. Pretty soon, uh, Joe Biden, the president, is going to arrive in Illinois, hoping to drum up momentum for his reelection campaign. Can he beat back the political headwinds that he is facing? We're going to talk about that next and see what he says about that question. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. A short time ago, President Biden addressed for the first time a string of recent polling that setting off alarm bells among Democrats, showing him trailing Donald Trump in multiple swing states. Uh, obviously, the chopper was very loud. He was less loud. He blew it off and saying that he's not worried about it. And he made the comments before heading to Illinois, where he will be working to sell weary Americans uh, on his economic agenda. He's going to be at an event alongside union workers, auto workers in particular. Priscilla Alvarez is live in Belvedere, Illinois, with more on the president's trip. Priscilla, I know you've been talking to your sources in the Biden camp about how they are really dealing with uh, the struggles that he's having on the political front, despite what they're saying publicly. 
That's right, and they are remaining confident. They point to the strong showing in on Tuesday where they had a lot of wins and gains and also pointing to the fact that polls are polls. And here in Illinois, the president is going to be selling his economic agenda before a friendly crowd, and that's union workers. Remember, union workers buoyed the president's bid in 2020, and it is who he is going to be appealing to in the months to come. Now, notably, the president is going to meet with UAW president Sean Fain. Now, they have not endorsed anyone yet, but recall the president went to the picket line during the UAW strike, and sources I've talked to say that the president's actions are moving in the right direction for that possible endorsement by going to the picket line, by administrative administration actions that led to the reopening of plans, and also that Fain even standing with the president today is support in and of itself. So that is what the president is going to be focusing on today. But zooming out here, Dana, this is Illinois. It's a state that the president won and it's also where political headwinds are converging on that and also border security where tensions have flared up as migrants have been arriving to Chicago. Dana? Yeah. Illinois, not a swing state. He's there for many other reasons. Thank you so much, Priscilla. Appreciate it. And our panel is back with us. It is interesting to see uh, that he does need to really court union workers, uh, really court work uh, voters, I should say, who are um, more and more going the Donald Trump slash Republican route. They came back a bit when he was on the ballot in 2020, but they're concerned about it. They're absolutely concerned about it. And given the polls, they should absolutely be concerned about it. Now, what's interesting is what happened on Tuesday where Democrats did relatively well, especially in, you know, some swing states, Virginia, even, you know, some, some places in New York, um, Kentucky, and why there is such a disconnect between President Biden's polling and how voters have performed in this midterm election. Now, Democratic sources that I talk to say, look, voters, when it comes down to it, when they have to pull that, push that button in the voting booth, they like the Democratic policies, they like the Democratic ideas, they can take out their frustration in polling questions, but they're not necessarily gonna do that when they vote, they think. We'll see how that stands next year when Biden is at the top of the ticket. Yeah, along with a guy named Donald Trump on the top of the ticket for the other party. And the Biden team is clearly just relying on um, <clears throat> that contrast they think is going to be sufficient enough uh, to heal a lot of these woes. Uh, they also point to the fact that what you see in the polling is he's experiencing diminishment of support among some traditional Democratic uh, base constituencies, uh, African-American voters, young voters, uh, Latino voters, and they think they'll have an easier time trying to bring them back into the fold than if they were on some huge uh, campaign to convert people that would otherwise not be inclined to support a Democrat. It's a lot of ifs. I would just say President Biden's tone in response to the yeah. polling was quite different from Vice President Harris's tone yesterday when she went before microphones and cameras, which, by the way, they're both clearly doing a bit more this week. Mm -hmm. I think that is also in reaction to the polls, uh, where she said, we have our work ahead of us to, to get out there and make this case on um, re-election. She was not dismissive of it. She was more acknowledging of it. It's interesting that he took a different approach there. I want you to let, go ahead. So I, I think that the optimistic gloss on the elections is it shows that these polls about Biden are misleading about what the actual outcome is going to be. But the pessimistic way of looking at it for Biden is, no, it shows that there is a problem personalized to Joe Biden. It's not the Democratic Party is in bad shape. It's that he personally is in bad shape. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I, I mean, I, I think that 
clearly, look, it's not just Tuesday night's results. That's the latest evidence. Special elections all this year, the better than expected performance in the midterms last year. Um, this is a Democratic Party that is not having a brand problem with the American people right now. That's pretty clear from how people are voting. But Joe Biden does have a problem with his standing with the American people. And in, in addition to the angst about the economy, which is a big part of it, it is also his age. We see that yeah. there. That's something he can't do anything about between now and next year. And, and it, right. There's nothing he can do. <laughs> nothing anybody can do. Just get it, older. It, 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 right. We all are. Uh, but... What they are trying to do inside his world is try to amp up the argument, the message that the vice president talked about, which they believe is getting lost about uh, all of the policies that he has in place that workers should like. Listen to what the Illinois governor said about that. Jobs have been saved. Jobs have grown as a result of what the president did to help reach an agreement, uh, UAW, with the automakers. And uh, we're very pleased. And I must say the workers there, their families, have benefited from the fact that we have the most pro-worker president probably in history, but certainly in my lifetime. He's not wrong. I mean, every single, most Democrats I talk to especially in Congress, say in their state, they're seeing job growth, they're seeing chips plants opening. There's a so all sorts of things that the Congress and the president have signed into law that is coming on to online. But it, politics is also about perception. Mm -hmm. And voters don't see that and they don't feel that. And when they still go to the grocery store and it's still more expensive, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, which is why they are out trying to change the perception, which is mm -hmm. what politics is also about. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh, up next, on the record, a new exclusive interview. CNN's Manu Raju spoke with a pretty angry Kevin McCarthy who slams the Republicans who forced him out of his speakership, especially a certain congressman from Florida. And now to a CNN exclusive. More than a month after being ousted from the speakership, Kevin McCarthy is still railing against the eight Republicans who forced him out. CNN's Manu Raju spoke exclusively to the former speaker this morning. It sounds like he was um, shy and retiring and really didn't want to say what was on his mind, Manu. <laughs> Not quite. In fact, <laughs> he is very clear that he is still very much upset with those eight Republicans who pushed him out. He has kept his powder mostly dry since Mike Johnson was elected speaker not too long ago, but he made clear it's fresh on his mind, the efforts led by Matt Gates, and he was particularly concerned about two congressmen in particular. One, Tim Burchett of Tennessee. He was surprised by his vote to oust him, but he also said that Nancy Mace, someone who hails from a competitive district in South Carolina, he said that she does not deserve to be elected. Matt Gates, you've been mentioning a lot. How much would the Republican Party benefit if you were no longer a member of the House, in your opinion? Oh, tremendously. I mean, it, people have to earn the right to be here. And um, I just think from, I mean, he'll admit to you personally, is he doesn't have a conservative bent in his philosophy um, and just the nature of what he focuses on. Do you think the House GOP should consider expelling him? Look, that, that's up to the conference, but I mean, I don't believe the conference will ever heal if there's no consequences for the action. What about them surprised you, Burchett and Mays? It just didn't, it seemed out of nature, but they, they, they seem to have changed during the time. They care a lot about press, not about policy, and so they, they seem to just want the press and the mm -hmm. personality. Do you think Mace will have a difficult time winning re-election now? 
Yeah, I don't. Well, not because of this. I mean, if you've watched her, just her philosophy and the flip flopping. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't believe she wins re-election. I don't think she'll probably have earned the right to get re-elected. I think that you look at the district herself, yeah. So in response, these members shooting back at the former speaker, Matt Gates saying, quote, thoughts and prayers to the former speaker as he works through his grief. And I asked Nancy Mace about all this, too. She said that she stands by her vote. She attacked McCarthy for, quote, lying all the time to her. And also Tim Burchett, uh, who said that speaker, former Speaker McCarthy is, quote, just bitter. And he said that he, he says, quote, he'll enter into a successful job in lobbying. So you're seeing, Dana, that no love lost here with the former speaker as he is adjusting to this new role as a, as a rank-and-file member, someone who is not in the room, not dealing with a potential crisis, a government funding crisis. One, of course, that ended his speakership not too long ago when he relied on Democratic votes to advance a short-term spending bill, but making very clear that those eight Republicans are still fresh on his mind. Dana. And will be for a long, long time. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Manu. Thank Appreciate you. it. Um, I love how he spoke about Nancy Mace and, and her race and saying she'll probably lose as if there's any chance he'll just be a passive observer <laughs> in what happens to Nancy Mace. I mean, there's, he's still got money. He's still got clout. He's, I mean, it's hard to imagine he won't get involved in that primary. Right, whether it's a public involvement or a very private behind the scenes involvement, because we know that that happens too, mm -hmm. uh, where it's not so obvious of the, the things being done. Um, but look, Kevin McCarthy is still angry. Um, he did not go quietly, even when they were still, when they were in the process of electing Speaker Johnson to be Speaker, he was still trying he was still running for speaker, trying to pull votes away from Johnson toward himself. And so this is going to be a very long process for this house to repair itself. They're in kind of a kumbaya moment right now, but every single source I talk to says they do not know how long this is going to last. Kumbaya, House Republicans? Uh, let's, uh, it's, it's, I think it's going to be pretty short lived. Yeah. They, they, can't, they can't make it through a conversation with Manu Raju with, with, uh, with the Kumbaya feeling still intact. No, I think that, um, that the, the tensions are all still there. They're, they're under the surface and they're not very far under the surface. And I, we may well, because of this honeymoon, be able to get through without a government shutdown in the near term. But you've got to figure that, that there's only one such incident that, uh, that Johnson can get through before he loses the support from some of the same people for whom no realistic deal is ever going to be good enough. And I can't wait to see the full interview that Manu did with McCarthy because it's certainly nowhere in the bites that we played so far was any McCarthy acknowledgement of any actions he took to get him uh, to this position. I don't know uh, if he does that, but obviously we all saw how he became speaker and had to agree to that deal. And, um, you know, he made his bed. And uh, I, I know he only wants to focus on the eight, but, but obviously uh, McCarthy also has to be aware in the back of his mind how it got there. Yeah, well, and the challenge for the current speaker, he's already running into it. He's in, just started week three. This week alone, he's already had to pull two funding bills from the floor because he doesn't have the votes to pass him. He is still learning the different ideologies of his conference from the far right to the swing state Republicans. He might be able to keep the government open um, because of this grace period that he is in. 
but uh, but passing those funding bills and what comes next is probably going to be the bigger challenge for him. Governing's hard. Yeah. Particularly when you have uh, a conference where you have a lot of people who don't really care about it. They just want to be, and, and I don't mean that even as a negative, like they didn't come to um, to make the, the wheels of government work, they came to disrupt. And you have a teeny tiny majority. So if you have a small majority that's cohesive, you can govern. If you have a large majority, you can put up with some division. Small and fractious is not a formula for success. Hmm. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And you can see more of Manu's exclusive interview this Sunday on Inside Politics starting at 11 a.m. Eastern. Coming up, can Democrats still win races in rural states? Well, they did in Kentucky, and there are lessons to be learned. In fact, we're gonna talk to Governor Andy Bashir's campaign manager about that next. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Tonight, Kentucky made a choice. A choice not to move to the right or to the left but to move forward for every single family. A choice to reject Team R or Team D and to state clearly that we are one Team Kentucky. That's Kentucky's newly reelected Governor Andy Bashir. Bashir is a Democrat in a ruby red state and was one of several wins for Democrats on Tuesday night. Now the question becomes, can other Democrats, including President Biden, replicate his victory looking ahead to the next election in 2024. Andy Bashir's campaign manager and Democratic strategist Eric Hires joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Congratulations uh, on Tuesday's win. Uh, you know, he now has shown the country twice, Governor Bashir, that is, that a Democrat can win in a red state. Kentucky is a place where Donald Trump won by 26 percentage points in 2020. As his campaign manager, what part of that Democratic governor's message do you think resonated most most with Kentuckians? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there were two main things. The first thing is Andy Bashir has just been a very good governor, right? He shows up. People know that he genuinely cares about them. He showed up in some very difficult, trying times for the people of Kentucky, and he has as, as uh, he has all as governor, he has not tried to move the state to the right or to the left, but just moved it forward and got some very big things done, um, working in a bipartisan way on big things like cutting the income tax, legalized sports betting, medical marijuana, um, and voters really appreciated that. And the second thing, though, is you saw a rejection of the anger politics. Um, and that I think is very good for Kentucky and for the country overall. We, we were up against not just the Cameron campaign, but five Republican super PACs that were running very gross, very false attacks. And, and, that, and that backfired and was rejected by voters. And that's a very good thing. Eric, you not only ran this uh, last campaign with Governor Bashir successfully, you also ran uh, Steve Bullock's 
campaign in Montana, mm -hmm. a Democrat, of course, as well. You were the Biden campaign's mm -hmm. uh, director in Michigan in yep. 2020. You mm -hmm. know how Democrats can get elected in red states or battleground states. Yep. The president is now trailing in yep. several of those states, including Michigan. How does he win the back? Well, look, I think I think Democrats, we've shown that Democrats can win swing states and tough states when you show up, you do a good job and people know that you genuinely care. And I think we'll, I think what we also did here and I think is a lesson for Democrats nationally is we ran very hyper localized uh, messages hi highlighting localized job jobs announcements, infrastructure projects. You know, ads were different in every sort of market. And, and we really communicated to voters that the things that Andy Bashir was doing as governor were directly impacting their lives. Is so that possible on a national level? Made... Yep. Well, yeah, I think you can make things very, very granular and very tangible. And, and, and voters, when they're voting for executives like governor and I think and, and president, they want to know that you're going to that you care for them and are fighting to make their lives better. And I think. I think Andy Bashir and Steve Bullock also showed that you can do that and you can overcome very, you know, uh, electorates and environments that um, favor the other party when voters understand that you really, really care about them. Governor Bashir's victory speech uh, on Tuesday night was interesting because he thanked a young woman named Hadley. She was featured in one of your campaign's ads. I want to play that for our viewers. Mm -hmm. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. I'm speaking out because women and girls need to have options. Daniel Cameron would give us none. How central yeah. was that to your campaign? And will it be the issue of abortion going forward in 2024? Yeah, well, first off, um, I think this race did show that abortion is on the ballot. Um, and that I want to say that Hadley is a remarkably brave and courageous young woman who, who came forward and, and put a face to a to a very real world, a very uh, real world scenario. And I think that ever since Dobbs, um, the flip has been, uh, the, the script has been totally flipped. I think Democrats used to spend decades in tough red states, you know, sort of um, hiding in a corner, afraid of their own shadow on this. And I think we showed that um, that now post Dobbs, labels don't matter. You can call yourself pro-life or, or pro-choice, but like the real world implications here are that 12-year-old girls who are raped um, and impregnated, um, do you think or do you not think they should be forced to yeah. give birth? And the overwhelming vast majority, upwards of 85% of Kentucky voters, we know say, no, mm. that's crazy and cruel. And so we would hear all the time from, from, from Republican uh, conservative voters who say, you know, look, I consider myself to be pro-life, but I just think that it's yeah. crazy and cruel to force yeah. someone to do that. Yeah, yeah, so interesting, which is why uh, Donald Trump is trying to take this issue off the table for him. Thank you so much mm -hmm. for joining uh, us. Congratulations again on your win on Tuesday. Hope to see you again soon, Eric Hires. Thank you very much. And up thank next, you. thank you. Lights, camera, back to action. The Hollywood actor strike is finally over. After four months on the picket line, we're going to go live to Los Angeles for all the details next. I am so happy. I'm so happy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Busy Phillips is all of us. 
celebrating a tentative deal with Hollywood Studios, which means 160,000 actors can head back to work today after nearly four months on the picket line. CNN's Camilla Bernal is covering all of the developments in Tinseltown. What are you hearing about this deal? Well, look, everybody is ecstatic and excited. This is what the union leaders are describing as historic, as extraordinary. And there are two things here, the first being the economics. Of course, they were able to get better wages and specifically minimum wages, uh, benefits, the streaming bonuses. But then there's also the AI protections. That was really one of the sticking points, something that was negotiated up until the very end and something that actors were truly concerned about, not knowing what was going to happen to their work in just a few years because of artificial intelligence now we do not have the details of the contract that is going to go to union uh, the union board tomorrow so we will have more details then the actors will have to vote to ratify but in the meantime everyone Dana is just so happy to hear that there is a deal no question about it Camilla thank you so much for that reporting thank you for joining inside politics CNN News Central starts after a quick break When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 